0: Hey, kids, welcome to Big Church. We're glad to have you on Family Sunday. You guys uh, sort of excited to be here, sort of ready to be done? We don't know? Hey, kids, do you know, uh, first of all, church, real quick, You thank you, students who came up here. It was really uh, bold of you. I know it took courage to get on stage and talk, and thank you for sharing uh, the the stories that impacted you, and there were several other students that went that, you know, not everybody's comfortable getting on stage, but that impact was was far-reaching and formative for our students. And so, th- church, thank you for your generosity in helping them go. Uh, we look forward to continuing to see uh, the work that God does through that camp and through our student ministry in the years to come. So thank you guys for sharing. And Noah, buddy, you killed that scripture reading. There's a lot of fun names in there, and you did better than me last week. Y'all know I was tongue-tied last week, and Noah nailed it. So good job, bud. I appreciate it. Um, all right, so kids, you... We're in a new series, and you guys are like, I don't know what that is. Well, that's what we teach about, and we're going to teach one of the books of God's Word, right? So we have the Bible, and there's books in the Bible, and there's, most of them are named after people. This one's named after Esther, and kids, if you're in here, you know that every good Disney story has what? A king, right? A queen, and then some whole other drama, Right? Well, this is one of those stories, and uh, we're walking through the book of Esther, and we're, we're uh, looking at this very unique book where God's name is not mentioned, and yet His presence is... Uh is, is very much behind the scenes, but is, is very active, and, um, and we'll see. Uh, he wins, and he is, is sovereign, even whenever he, it's, it's uh, a little harder to see, and I think that'll be helpful for us as we wonder what's going on in our world a lot of the time, and, and why God allows things to happen, and, and where he is in the midst of a lot that is happening in our world. I think this book will be encouraging to that end. And so, uh, today, we look at um, the second part of chapter 1. Last week, we looked at the, the grandeur of King. Ahasuerus, which is also known as uh, Xerxes, right? Ahasuerus was his Persian name. Xerxes is his Greek name, and that is far easier to say. So whenever you see a Ahas- Ahasuerus, see, there I go, in the, in the Bible, you're going to see me call it Xerxes. You good with that? So just know that from, from here on out. Same guy. Um, and there's one you know from history. If you've heard stories about King Xerxes, the king of Persia, this is indeed that same Xerxes. The Bible's not just written over here in some make-believe world. This is real... Um, Stories that happened in history, along with you know, alongside the, the history that you studied in school and, and know about it. So, uh, this is the story of King Xerxes and how God works in the midst of this very uh, secularized and pagan culture <clears throat> through a couple of his people named Mordecai and Esther, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. So, last week we saw the grandeur of Xerxes' kingdom, it's incredible, it's huge, and yet he is not content. He has thrown this huge party to. Uh, <clears throat> really launched this campaign to invade really the, one of the only parts of the world that he's not yet conquered, uh, which is Greece. And so uh, he's throwing this incredible party for his uh, governors and his uh, you know, leaders of the army. Um, he has a six-month basically a banquet where they're, they're brought in and he's, he's pitching his scheme, inviting them to feast at his table and really showing them, hey, we should do this, and if you do, you'll be rewarded richly. And then it all uh, kind of culminates with a seven-day feast, which he invites everybody in the city to come into his courts and, and, and just party, right? It's an open bar party where everybody gets a golden cup, and it's anytime it's empty, it gets filled back up whenever you want it. And so that's kind of what we saw last week. And we talked about how, how Jesus is the better king with better riches, and yet instead of using that to just exalt himself and, and command that we all obey, and, and he instead, we see in Philippians 2, empties himself and comes as a servant king who who came not to be served, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him and his gospel sacrifice. So that's what we looked at last week, and then today we're going to see uh, the drama continue, or the drama is going to kind of pick up as we see um, sort of what's behind Xerxes' rule, and we started to see some cowardice even in the story last week, and we're going to see that fleshed out even more this week, and really, the, the title of today's sermon is, King Jesus Makes Better Men, and the reason that we're titling it that way is because what we're going to see is a lot of ridiculousness from the men in this story, and I think it's relevant today because we just spent a whole series talking about gender, right, and sexuality, um, here at our church and and why it matters. And it doesn't take long if you're just scrolling through your newsfeed to see something about um, how women are treated, how men should be, toxic masculinity, a lot of these things. And, And it's just a conversation that our culture is having all of the time and what we saw and, and said repeatedly in the gender series is that God's design for us as male and female is not by mistake. It's not to be apologized for. It. It's not to be done away with. In fact, it is to be held up and pursued as the way that will lead not only to God getting glory, but also to us flourishing. And so we've talked a lot about that. Um, and, and what we see, though, is that what the issues that are, arise within our culture come from our own sinful, twisted desires, right? God made man good. He made woman good, and, and he's not surprised by the strength of man. He's not surprised by the beauty of women, and yet all of that gets confused consistently throughout history, and there are times in history when those roles get twisted, and uh, you know there's confusion about who should be doing what and how they should be treated, and, and often throughout history, women don't have a voice to speak into those issues, and so the solution from the culture becomes that women should get their act together, and then we'll all move on our merry way. And that's what we're going to see uh, they propose in today's story. But in, to, in, in our world today, in real time, what's happening today is th- there's issues, there's, there's unhealth in the way that women are being treated for sure and a lot of other issues around gender and sexuality. And, and there's pushing forward this conversation that we need to have for sure about how women are treated and all of those things. And yet the solution that's being put forward by our culture today is very often that masculinity is the issue, right? Toxic masculinity and then therefore masculinity in general. And what we need to do to have true equality and to have true flourishing is to get rid of men and their aggression and their, uh, you know, their power hungry postures and all. And so you see this conversation that's going on um, in our world. And, And what we would say and what we're going to look at today is that actually there's neither one of those is going to pan out well. Right? It's not that just women just need to, you know, get their stuff, you just do what we say and move on. It's not that men need to be eradicated and emasculated and, and you know, written out of history. It's none of those things. In fact, it is um, something totally different. It's that Jesus is calling out better men. The problem isn't masculinity, the problem is a lack of true masculinity. And the only way that our society is going to experience healing and flourishing is through. Redemption and restoration of what God had in mind originally. And we're going to let today's story um, kind of lay over and, and expose some of the brokenness that's happening right here in our world today and, and let the redemption and the, the, the better call of Jesus speak to men and call them out. So, so young men and young women, if you're in here today, and I know there's lots of you that are and you're squirming and you're wondering and all of those things, and parents just know that it's okay. We get it, all right? All um, right. Young men and women, here's what you need to know as we start this. Jesus is not saying that it is wrong to be a man. Jesus is not saying that you need to be less of a man. Jesus is going to say you need to come and be more of a true man, more of a biblical man, more of what I have in mind for you. And when that happens, women will be treated better and men will lead better men will be better for the society and we'll see a lot of the healing that our our country's longing for we'll see it happen whenever men lean into what god has called them to be so that's what we want to see we're going to see a lot of cowardice we're going to see a lot of brokenness from the men in this story and we're going to look at how king jesus calls us to be better he moves out of the behavior modification world and into new birth new life and spirit empowered redemption Good. All right. So let's look at this story together and we're going to walk through it and and um, see how King Jesus makes better men. So on the seventh day of this huge party, whenever uh, there's there's no, you know, everybody's just drinking at their however they want. Right. Um, And seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he is drunk at this point. Um, and what's going to happen next is dumb and messed up, and that's what we're going to talk about. And, and what will happen, what we see right here already is we're seeing part of what our culture would do is they would start talking about behavior modification because what happens next is dumb. And so they'll say right there, well, that was the problem. He got drunk. And I would say, well, it certainly wasn't wise that he got drunk. However, I would, I would submit to you that the alcohol probably wasn't the root of the issue. It probably just exposed what was already in that joker, Right. That very often alcohol isn't isn't making us completely different. Certainly, it has an effect on our on our mind, and, and the Bible warns against drunkenness and and, um, and especially against kings. You know, drinking out because they're responsible for a, you know a whole country or empire of people, and so there's warnings against that. But I would submit to you that it's not the, the alcohol that causes this guy to be an idiot, right? that the alcohol rather just uh, sets all that free and reveals what's already inside of him. Now, I know that there's sayings about that, and there's varying degrees about whether, you know. and I'm not trying to make a medical statement to which I'm not qualified to make. However, I'm just saying, by and large, alcohol is not the root of the issue. So some people just want to point that out and say, well, that was the issue. If we just get rid of that, then we wouldn't have these these problems. And I would say, well, no, I, I think there's probably something deeper going on that the alcohol just let out, and we should probably look into that. First and, and foremost, and then, and, and I, I would submit to you, I, we can't talk a ton about this, as Uriah, as an example of how it's, it's true that it, it, alcohol itself doesn't lead to the issues and the sin and the debauchery, that whatever's inside of you is going to drive primarily what happens in those moments. And, and Uriah, if you know the story of King David sleeping with Bathsheba and having this whole mess, and he's trying to cover it up because he got caught, and then what he tries to cover it up is having Uriah, his wife, come home, and I won't get into all this, it's in 2 Samuel 11, but the point I want to make is that twice, King David tries to get Uriah intoxicated so that he will go and be with his wife so that when she's pregnant, it won't be curious, right? And he won't get caught. And what happens? Uriah parties with, Uriah, drinks with him, enjoys the night, but he refuses to go and sleep in his bed with his wife. Instead, he sleeps outside saying, no, 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 my men are out on the battlefield. I'm not going to go and enjoy, you know, home whenever they can. And so we see that where honor and character is present, it still shines through even in those moments of intoxication. And so, uh, again, I'm not you know, saying that's the way to, to life by any means. I'm just saying let's not make it the villain, the issue in the story that leads to all the other issues. And, w- and what you see there, it, we, in Christianity and a lot of the modern church, like, we would start to say, okay, well, here's the issue. And we start to put out you know, behavior modification notices. Well, if you don't do that, then that won't lead to that. And I would say to you that Jesus goes much deeper. Much deeper. The Sermon on the Mount, which we all love, where Jesus is talking about, hey, I know you've heard that if you murder somebody, that's wrong. I tell you what? Even if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you've already committed that sin. He does the same for lust. And what's he doing there? Is he just put, tightening down the screws on the law and, and saying, no, i got to be even better? No, he's saying, I'm creating a new ethic, and I'm not just going after behavior. I'm going after your heart, and I'm going after fruit of the Spirit and what's actually going on in your soul, and that, and he's going to transform us from the inside out. We see the same thing, and what comes next is the, the king is drunk, and what's he do? He commands these guys. Got some interesting names here. You know, uh, my favorite is perhaps Bigtha. He sounds sort of like a rapper. Um, but then if you're, you know, there's some of you in here pregnant thinking about baby names, I might submit carcass as one you might want to put on the table. Just saying. It could go either way, girl or boy. Um, little baby carcass who are these guys? Verse, verse 10, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes. Now, it's Family Sunday, so I ain't going to unpack that a ton. But I want you to think about a eunuch, if you don't know, is, is, is a male who's been castrated. A male who has been emasculated to, physically to the point where they, they no longer have the testosterone flowing through them that God gave them. And, and here's, here's what's going on with that. It's not a major part of the story, but it is a part of the story because what we see is is there's already a management of masculinity going on in the story. We have a king who's a coward, Right? And, and, and instead of calling better men to serve him and, and releasing them to be who they are, he's trying to manage them already. So what would happen in these days is they would castrate these men so that they could serve in lower, more meaningful jobs in service of the king. And often they would be set, as in this story, it's set to take care of, to tend to the king's harem of women. And they would do that to them so that they weren't interested in the women. It's a way to control and, and manipulate men of this day, to make sure that they do what they want them to do. And so um, that's what's happening in this moment. We see that our culture is so, like, that's a, we have, we don't do that, the physical practice anymore, but the, the, the practice of emasculating, cutting down, making people feel less than, making sure that everybody knows that they are less than, bullying, all of, like, this is rooted in the same, path of sin. You see what I'm saying here? And, and we have this temptation to try to behavior modify, say, well, you know, if he just wasn't drinking, or well, if they just weren't dumb men, so we'll take that from them. And I, I would suppose I would present to you that part of what's happening in the sexual revolution in our day is they're trying to emasculate men to the point that men's not really a thing, right? That, that true equality, they would say, is going to come whenever, you know, men stop being strong and aggressive and those types of things and instead act more like women. And again, it's not a physical castration thing, but it is very much a mental, emotional, and identity issue that is going on in our world where it's it's a lot like the drive of why they made eunuchs in this day. So these guys um, represent just another issue there of of behavior uh, management. And so Here's the first thing. Cowards call for the managing of behavior from a distance. Right? They say, I'm, I fear, I'm fearful of that, so here's where we're going to fix it by doing this. Right? Stop doing that. Start doing this. And cowards call for the management of behavior from a distance. King Jesus draws near and draws out and demands better character. King Jesus. See, Xerxes says, I don't want those guys messing with my women, and I don't want them angry that I'm having them do these menial tasks, so take away their manhood. That's what King Xerxes says. King Jesus says, hey men, I know that you're broken. I know there's something inside of you that doesn't quite fit in the world that you're living in. I know that boys, hey boys, y'all here, I know that it's hard for you to sit still for eight, for seven hours a day at school. Jesus says, hey, I know that. You guys with me? All right, Jesus says, I know there's something broken inside of you where your your sexuality runs wild and you don't know what to do with these desires. Jesus says, I know all of that. And instead of pushing you away and saying, fix all that and then maybe you can be in my presence, Jesus draws near and speaks the truth and the gospel to us. And the gospel is that Jesus... Made a way that we could be redeemed, that if we make him our Savior, we, we stop trusting ourselves, we confess that Jesus, I'm a sinner, that means I've disobeyed you and I need you to save me. When we do that, his spirit enters us, and he starts to, instead of taking away from masculinity, he starts to add the fruit of the spirit whenever. And, and, and when the fruit of the spirit flourishes inside of man, we have men who God has created to be men, and there's no, nothing to apologize about true biblical masculinity. So cowards. Behavior modification from a distance. Jesus draws near, makes us new from the inside out. Calls forth, men. He even says this in First Corinthians. He, he says, "Listen, hey, stop acting like boys. Instead, start acting like men." He speaks that over us. He adopts us. He he validates who we are as men. And he says, "Hey, now go. Don't don't apologize for being a man." Like, listen. Part of this issue we talk about this in gender series is we think Christianity is calling all of us to just be really nice guys. Right? That we come to, like, the church men are just really nice, you know, polo wearing, smile having, Ned Flanders like, gee golly, isn't this a good day kind of men. And it is not the image of biblical masculinity that we see anywhere in the Bible, especially not in Jesus. Jesus was a lot of things that people want to talk about. He was not a passive man, not a passive man. Read the Gospels, you will see him filled with zeal. You will see him confronting evil. You will see him drawing near, being strong and yet being gentle. You'll see him being a true man. And that's our model, right? Not, a, not the feathered hair, soft skin, lamb holding, you know, petty little Jesus. No, he, Jesus was a strong, Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus had strength. Jesus was, his skin was rough. He might have had long hair, but it wasn't feathered like a Pantene Pro-V commercial, right? Like it was probably just rough, you know, rough and raw and maybe a little, I don't know, Right? We've got we to redo our image of biblical masculinity. And, um, and so that's the first thing we see. Not interested in behavior modification. Interested in drawing out better men from the inside out. So, so what's King Xerxes do? So all that's just first two things. And we and will move quick, I promise. But, so he sends these eunuchs to... All right, everybody has been... Now, we see the men are, are separate. We saw that earlier. The women have been over having their own party with Queen Vashti. And now these men are good and liquored up and the seventh day of the thing. And, and Xerxes says, hey, go get my wife. I want to show her off. Verse 11, he sends these guys to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and princess her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. Now history tells us that this was no under Like she was gorgeous. She was beautiful. She was probably like stunningly beautiful. And... So Xerxes says, hey, everybody, he's done all this to flex his muscles, show his power, show his glory, and now he wants to cap it off by saying, hey, go get my wife. I want, to, I want everybody to see my trophy wife. I want her to, to come and strut now. So now, I want you to think, this is the, this is the situation. Here's what he said. Go get her so that she, everybody can see her. Now, who's everybody? This is a room full of drunk dudes. Now, women, do you want to do, like, is that an appealing invitation to anybody? Right? That's an animal-like environment that they've created there and saying, okay, hey, come, come strut your stuff so that we can all enjoy it. And so this is, this is what's put forward here is the objectification of women. And this is another thing that our culture does. And Xerxes leads out in this in objectifying women and their beauty. I'll submit to you that Jesus, on the other hand, models and demands the humanization of women. But let's talk about this for just a moment. Cowards objectify Women And this is what's happening in this moment. these moments. These men are exploiting. Um, there was probably women in that room, but there were probably employed women there. And, and you can use your imagination to think about that. But now he wants her to come in and be the, the kind of a crown jewel wearing her crown. Some historians think that he might have only wanted her to be wearing her crown. And yet, th- and so this is, the, this is the moment here. This is the objectification of women that we see on display in this kingdom. We see this in the story, but listen. Here, I want to apply this very quickly because here's what here's what happens in our world today. Like Xerxes isn't alone. This is, in fact, we've not done away with Xerxes' practice of objectifying women. In fact, we've uh, blown it up in the world of internet and today's modern era to the point that this is just. Again, I'm trying to choose my words wisely for family Sunday, but you know what I'm talking about. The sensual images that pervade everything. In our media, even mainstream media, let alone the access to explicit media, holds forward to for us the objectification of women in an incredible and, and really concerning way that we don't talk about a lot. So, we're having these conversations about Harvey Weinstein and, and Matt Lauer and other men that have you know, been caught in these scandals, and we should be having these conversations about how they've treated women. absolutely disgusting and need to be handled and needs to be changed and needs to be addressed so that it doesn't keep happening in our world. However, what we don't talk about is some of the underlying issues, right? And how the the advance and the, the rise into which um, sensual images in our world today has, has come to the forefront and we kind of act like that's just normal and okay. And then we want to condemn this Behavior when it becomes a physical action, and yet we're talking about, like we're just training our young men and our young women that sexual objectification is just how it is, but then you know don't act this way we'll draw the line here and and what I would say to you is that like, that all is going to get connected and boil over more often than not. if you do some research about how we got to the issues of of me too that we're talking about in our world today, and you'd link it back to the rise of some things that you know really took off in the, in the 60s and 70s with Hugh Hefner and others. Like, you have to give weight to what's happening there or what happened there to what's happening now. Does that make some sense? And so we cannot just look at the behavior of men acting like pigs whenever they're around women and not talk about the behavior of men whenever they're alone in their bedrooms or they're alone in their offices with their devices. We can't, we can't separate the two. And I'm not excusing behavior of those men on the account of the media and the culture. I'm just saying we have to we have to factor them in. I, I think I've probably told this story before, but it, it stands out to me. Uh, from several years ago, I was working at Home Depot, and I was walking with with this older gentleman who I respected and admired and, and really enjoyed being around. And we passed a, a young woman who was dressed um, revealingly, and his, he, had a, he had a reaction. He was like you can imagine from men. And, and my goodness, one of those kind of things. And then he said something to me that, i didn 't know what to do with in the moment, and it has still kind of haunted me ever since something along the lines of and then it, oh my goodness, about how she was how she looked, and then he said, and they wonder why they get raped and that was just, and, and it was just totally like just a statement on well, this is why this happens because they are dressing like that that is that is a direct result of the objectification of Sensuality in our world today where we want to just attach that like, and again, there's certainly some issues to be addressed with how women dress and how they want to be perceived. But listen, that doesn't mean that we just say, well, they got what they deserve. No, no, no. See, we're not just worried about behavior modification. Jesus says, my men don't objectify women. My men are going to humanize women. My men are going to see those women And beyond their skin are going to see their souls. And beyond what they look like on the eye is going to know that that woman is someone's daughter. That that woman, whether she's married now or not, is someone's wife, whether today or in the future. That woman is someone's future mother. And what King Jesus would say is, hey, here's how you treat women around you, young men. He says this in Timothy. He says, you're going to treat... You're going to treat them, they're not your wife. You treat them as though they're your sister or your mother or your daughter. That's the type of relationships that you have. And if you would not objectify your sister, mother, or daughter in those ways, then don't do that to the women around you. Instead, you draw near and humanize that. And, and instead of writing this narrative of, oh, man, I wonder why she gets what whatever, instead we, we draw near and say, oh, man, pray for her, that beloved young woman feels the need to put herself out there physically and clearly she's longing for something and thinking that exploiting her looks is the way to get that and why wouldn't she think that that's very much the message the world has said right King Jesus's men don't objectify they humanize they draw near they empathize they see the soul behind and they treat them as sisters mothers daughters not as objects So, I want, you, I want you to think about it now, women. I want you to put yourself in Vashti's shoes. How would you feel? How would you feel? You get this request. Hey, King Xerxes wants you. He wants, you, wants to show you off. How would you feel? Now, listen, I know because of the way I've, I've tended this, the way I'm like, telling the story, that your, your first reaction because you're in church is to think, oh, well, I'd feel disgusted, right? I'd, I'd, I'd feel, but, but I want you to think about it honestly, though honestly, though? How would you feel? Would you feel honored? Would you feel sexy? Would you feel validated? Would you feel empowered? Don't you think about that. And what does that say? And we'll talk about that in, in next week a little bit, but what does that say about our culture? And what does that say about the brokenness that, that all of this has done to our young women and young girls? I'm telling you, being a dad of three young girls has, has changed me in, my, like, in, in so many ways where I was ready to raise young men, excited about how te- teaching them to be biblical men, but now God has had a, a different plan for me to teach my young girls how they are to be treated and how, what they should expect out of men. And that is, is tough. So, how would you feel? So, she's lovely to look at. He says, come here. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused. (gasps) She refused to come at the king's command. Now, listen. First of all, very much in that culture, you don't just refuse your husband in general, but this is the king. This is a guy that if you walk into his presence without being invited, you will be killed. Right? If you... Don't do something he says to do, you will be killed. So she knows, she knows the consequences of this. And we'll look at this in the future weeks when we get into Esther and how she approaches the king. But she knows, Vashti knows what the consequences of saying no. And yet she says no. Now listen, a lot of people they right, read this Bible and they would go, well, we got to moralize this. And even though it wasn't a great situation, she should have submitted to her husband. Right? I've heard that from Bible teachers. I've heard that from, from preachers. And I, I want to ask you, what, what do you how, how does that feel when I put that forward to you? Should she have? Should she have just done what he said, even though, because she's, he's her husband? Is, she, it's, is submission, the Bible talks about submitting to your husband. Is that conditional? Sort of. Yeah, sort of is. When the Bible talks about submitting to your husband as a wife, he, they're not talking about enabling abuse. You need to know that, church. You need, women, you need to know that. Young women, you need to know that. that and I, I've seen this way too often where God's word has been used to enable and justify abuse in the world of the church. And that is not at all what it is meant to be. The, the men that, that are husbands that their wives are called to submit to are also called to submit to the elders of the church, submit to Jesus himself. And there's some mutual submission that happens here. And I just want, I, I can't talk about this at length, uh, but. Today, But I just want to submit to you that very much within God's parameters of the church, there is a way for a woman to speak up and to not be abused, to not be run over, to not be objectified, not be physically abused, verbally abused, sexually abused by her husband. There is room for you to get help in God's word. And it's just very simply in Matthew 18. Very simply in Matthew 18, Jesus says, someone sinned against you, you need to tell that person that they've sinned against you. You need to bring it to their attention. They don't repent, they don't care, then what do you do? You go get one or two others and you take them with you. They still don't repent, then you go get the leaders of the church and let them go and confront. And so I want to give you permission, women, and men, like if you're in an abusive relationship, know that the Bible is not to be used to enable and justify that mess. By no means. There's an article on your app under this weekend, I would encourage you if you want to read a little bit further on that, but I just just want to make that clear. I think Vashti is doing the right thing by saying no to this joker i don 't think she should submit in this moment of debauchery to this man who is an idiot okay so there, there's a lot of nuances to be played out in that, but I just want to submit that briefly. Cowards command things from their women real like, here 's the thing he doesn 't even have a conversation with her. he just sends his boys to you know, his eunuchs, to go and tell her. And Here's what you see. You, you see this in men where they don't know how to have a conversation with a woman, especially their wives, and they shut down, and so they just kind of are passive most of the time and then demand things, and it just doesn't work out well. Cowards demand things from their women. Real men know how to have a conversation. Cowards demand Jesus' men converse, Right? Real men know how to have a conversation with their wife. He is totally removed from relationship. He just sends his men to go get him, right? Um, Here's the deal. If you're going to send a, men, pro tip here, if you're going to send a message to your wife by the hand of other people, it had better be like a poem or an invite to a romantic weekend. It had better not contain some demands and requirements. It's not going to go well for you. Just a quick tip, okay? You're going to send a message with somebody else. It had better be one of romance and and wooing, not one of demands and conditions. So, what should she have done? I think she did the right thing. She refused. But listen, it ticked him off. We see at this, verse, the end of 12, at this the king became enraged. His anger burned within him. Why? Well, because his authority, his, his power, his, his, you know, his masculinity has been threatened. She didn't do what I told her to do. Now he's humiliated in front of all these people. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine the anger? of Nobody disobeys Xerxes. He is literally viewed as a god king in this world. Like, he, he speaks with authority. He sits high and above all of his subjects. And so nobody disobeys this man. And yet, Vashti has been bold enough to say no. And it makes him angry. So, what does he do? He gathers his wise men who know the times. For this was the king's procedure toward all the reversed in law and judgment, he gathers these other group of guys with fun names and, and they have this little conference and most historical documents believe that they were also intoxicated here. They had this way, they were either going to talk about the issue, intoxicated, and then come back to it the next day and see if they agree with what they came up with or if they talked about it soberly, then they would make sure they got intoxicated before they validated things. So this was common for them to just have that as a part of the you know, the decision-making process. Uh, here's, a, here's another quick tip. you having issues in your marriage. You're having issues in relationships and how you handle people. Don't gather a bunch of other jokers that are young men and don't know how to live life and ask them for advice. Right? Don't, don't gather a bunch of other entitled young jokers that have never had a wife and don't know how to treat a woman and expect them to give you solid, sound advice. You want to roll that up a decade or two to a guy who's been there, done that, right? And say, hey, man, Kind of boo-booed this. Um, she humiliated me in front of everybody. What do I do? Because these guys say, Hey, you gotta teach her a lesson. Take her crown, which and she can never come back in your presence, which is a curious punishment for a woman said, I don't want to be around that fool. They say, Well, you can never be around him again. She, I mean, I gotta imagine she was just like, All right, fine, you know. Uh not real appealing anyway. But so that that's their and so they say, She's gonna take her throne. Um Make this law, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. That then uh, Memukin, it sounds like a spice or an herb or something, said uh, in the presence of the king and his officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are all in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For The queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Xerxes commanded that Queen Bashti be brought to him, and she did not come. So what they say is, well, she's not only sinned against you, King Xerxes, she's sinned against everybody in the kingdom, and she set a bad example. I want you to think about, like, we kind of laugh at this, but I want you to think about the impact of, like, our celebrity culture. Think about Kate Middleton, right? Think about what she does, what she wears flies off the shelf, right? What, what she, how she acts, how she dresses, how, what it, like, her influence is incredible. And, and they know this. And so they're saying, well, Queen Vashti, everybody just saw her humiliate Xerxes. In, in, in the so we know what's coming next. All these women are going to think that they can do that. So we better make a law. And that's what they come up with. Uh, verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written amongst uh, of the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. When the king makes a law, we'll see this later in the book, it cannot be undone. It, they have to hold to it. That Vashti is to never again come before King Xerxes, which again is a curious punishment for the lady who didn't want to come to him in the first place. Um, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. What does they mean by that? Somebody who will respect him, right? Somebody who won't run off their mouth, who won't uh, disobey commands. What, somebody that's better. Let, get a new queen, one that will honor you as you deserve, right? Verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike king thought this was a good idea. The advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as the, as the spice guy proposed. He sent letters to all the world provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, to every man, that every man listen to this, be the master in his own household and speak according to his own people, so or in his own language. So here's what he does. He Cowards blame the woman. They blame the wife, right? We see Adam did this in Genesis 3. We see uh, Xerxes still doing this. We see lots of men do this today. Well, that's what's wrong with our marriage. She just just did this, or if she would just do that, cowards blame the woman. Her behavior is going to affect the whole kingdom. Well, what about your behavior, you dope, right? Nobody's looking at the man in that moment and going, what about you, Xerxes? You're the one who got drunk for seven days had a party and then thought your wife was going to enjoy traipsing in front of everybody? No, bro. Your behavior is going to affect the whole kingdom. But we're not having that conversation because the men hold the power in this day, right? But cowards, they're going to blame and then they're going to intimidate and then legislate if they can. So this is what they do. They legislate honor and respect. Listen, here's the deal. If you've got to demand respect, from the people around you, whether that's your employees, whether that's your family, if you've got to demand that they respect you, hasn't that respect already been diminished greatly? Is that really even respect? All right, if you've got to make them do it, then they're not they're not respecting you. They're just doing it out of fear of the consequences. Cowards demand people you've known leaders like this, we've seen military leaders like this, we've seen uh, you know political leaders like this. You demand that people respect you. It ain't happening, right? Real men earn respect. Real men earn respect. They don't demand it, and they're not entitled to it. They earn it. Real men earn respect. I, I want to just, they, they literally try to legislate it and, and and say this is what you got to do. I, I want to just end by looking. Uh, all this, most of this issue gets boiled down to this issue of wives submit to your husbands and that just gets twisted by the culture and say, see, that book is not applicable to our world and we need to throw it out and Christian worldview is oppressive and all these things. It's a misunderstanding of what's going on in that text. And I just want to close. This is, we've talked about this a lot in the last few weeks, but I don't think we can talk about it enough. Ephesians 5 just puts this forward for us and says this. That, listen, yes, wives should submit to their husbands, but here's husbands how you're required so Xerxes leads out in objectifying and minimizing and then uh, powering up against his wife and legislating respect for all women. That's how Xerxes handles this issue. What Jesus calls us to as men, he says, listen, he just told the wives to, to submit to their husbands earlier in, in, in uh, Ephesians 5. And then he follows it up and says this, husbands, you need to love your wives. Love them. Don't send dudes to go tell her what to do. Love them. How should you love him? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here, we see, G, we see Paul is pointing back to Jesus who stands in contrast to Xerxes. Xerxes stands from afar and demands what should be done for him. Instead, Jesus steps off of his throne and comes to give his life for his bride, the church. He gives himself up for her. He earns. Our, when, when Jesus requires us to obey him and do what he says to do, he's earned that, hasn't he? He gave his life on the cross. We just sang about that. We just observed that in the Lord's Supper. Like He has earned the right to tell us what to do and for us to submit to him because his heart is good. He loves us. He cares about us deeply to the point that he has sacrificed himself for us. Listen, all those movies that we talked about earlier, kiddos, how do they end? They end with some hero sacrificing himself for somebody else, right? And we celebrate that. And it's the moment we all, you know, emotion rises up in us. Well, listen, that's all modeled after the greatest story ever told where Jesus sacrificed himself for his bride, the church, for you and I. So when Paul says, hey, wife, submit to your husbands, you need to listen more carefully to how the husbands are called to live than just that whole short little verse about wife submitting. He says, gave himself up for her, and that's how you should live your life, husbands, giving yourself up for your wife, that he might sanctify her. He wants to bring out the best in her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He's not just trying to present his bride to the world to, to just ogle at, right? He's trying to present the church to the whole world to see the beauty and the purity of his bride. He wants, wants everybody to know how amazing she is, how how redeemed she is. And that's the, the totally different posture of what Xerxes is trying to do with Vashti. He wants to present her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That in itself, right, is, is a big deal. Love your wives as your own bodies. That, that There's tons of applications. You want to know what to do with this message? Just read the rest of this passage, Ephesians 5, and study it, man, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his own body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects the husband. That is what God has for us in maleness and femaleness, and men and women, and how we are to interact with one another. And so, as we close this up, I just want to Invite you, men, where you see this type of brokenness played out, objectifying and minimizing and demanding and powering up, intimidating, where you see that sort of posture rising up in you. I just want to invite you to repent. You might be at a crossroads roads today where you're exposed, like Xerxes was exposed right there in front of everybody. His wife didn't do what he said that she's supposed to do, right? He's exposed. He's got a choice now. Is he going to, he decides to power up and make a law and take her throne? What could he have done? We could have got off his throne and went and talked to her, right? Could have said, I'm sorry. Man, you need to know that phrase. You to own your boneheadedness. And say, I'm sorry. So you may be at the same crossroads where you're exposed in your cowardly masculinity. And you have a choice today. Are you going to power up and say, well, it's nobody else's business. So what, what happens in my house? And he needs to stay out of this. And no, that's not about me. I'll keep doing what. You're going to do that? Because the opportunity in front of you from Jesus is to repent. to Come to me, I'll give you life. I know you've messed it up. I'll give you grace, and I'll help you get there. I'll help you get healthy. And some of you never had a good model of what it means to be a good husband, to be a good man. And you don't even know what, how to get there or what that would look like, and I get that. And what I could just invite you to is you. what you can do is just start here by repenting and saying, I know. I know that I need help. I know that I need to become a better man. I just start there. He'll meet you there. He'll, he'll breathe life into you from there, and, and men will come around you and begin to walk with you and show you the way that Jesus has called us to live. Women, if you're here, I just want you to please hear that the Bible does not excuse or justify abuse, objectification, or the using of women. You need to know that. The Bible does not excuse, justify, or like that is not the direction and posture and narrative of scripture is is moving there's some broken stories in scripture right about but i believe that the, the, those are not what we should be doing but instead of what was happening in the the, the direction and the, the narrative of scripture is moving toward jesus dignifying and embracing women in his ministry it's moving toward what we just looked at in ephesians 5 where paul lays out the gospel guidelines for marriage where he calls for better men so you can also call for a better man. If you're in an abusive relationship, you can call that out and say, this is not how we're supposed to live and I'm going to get help. I'm going to speak up to one of the leaders today. I want to encourage you to do that. You, if, you're, if you're single and you're looking for a husband, don't settle for a bonehead boy who thinks that this is the kind of life that he gets to live is just to have you at his disposal. No, you call for better man. You call for a man who's going to serve you, love you, and lay down his life for you. So don't live in fear. Don't minimize your worth, women, or your story. You don't have to know all the steps of how it looks to get out of that mess if you're in an abusive relationship. But I would just say, hey, come talk. Like, we as a church will walk with you. We as elders will stand with you. We'll protect you if needed. Like, we will help you get the help that is needed to get out of that. Like, so know that King Jesus makes better men, requires us to be better men, and does not, explain away or justify men that are abusive to women. He brings healing into that. So we're going to pray. And I just trust that the Lord will do work in each of our lives as this text just lays on us, He's calling each of us to respond differently, but I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will, will bring us to repentance where needed, will bring hope and healing where needed, and you'll feel like you can speak up because you have a Savior that, that listens and that cares. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for who you are. A God who cares about the vulnerable, who calls out the strength and honor in men and sets forward life for us. So I pray that, Lord, you would be here and be present in a way that brings life this morning. Spirit, come and fall as you would. In Jesus' name, Amen.